You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As soon as you know that you're going to miss a payment, immediately get in contact with the creditor. Hopefully, if you have up until that point a great history with this creditor, they will be happy to work with you. It's in the creditor's best interest to work with you. They want you to keep your account on track with them and they want to get paid. Your life is going to change. Jobs, kids, houses. Are you financially ready to enjoy the ride? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor today because you've got a lot to look forward to, but it's always better to be prepared. Hey, everybody. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. So I am usually the optimist in the room. I'm usually not even one to be pessimistic about the economy because I believe that there is pretty much always something that we can do, if not the economy writ large, well then at least to make our own personal economies better, even if the markets are throwing us for a loop. But I gotta say, I am worried right now, not because of the Dow, not because of inflation, but because of credit card debt. The latest data that we have from the New York Fed from the end of 2022 shows that credit card balances reached an all-time high of $986 billion nationally. The average debt that each American carries has also climbed to $5,800, which is up about $700 from 2020. And With inflation still chipping away in no small way at our spending power, it's not surprising to me that people have come to lean more on their credit cards. But the interest rate hikes that the Fed has said it will not be stopping any time soon make it a tough time and a pretty bad idea to take on more debt than you have to. And when you add to all this the fact that 43% of people who have credit card debt are not even sure what interest rates they're being charged, the average is around 20%, by the way, and that 65% of people believe that carrying a small balance on your credit card each month actually improves your score, it doesn't, we'll dig into that, then it makes it clear why we need to get back to the basics. So what are the best rules for building credit? What can we do to get a hold of debt that is spiraling out of control? And how can we use credit cards as a helpful tool, as part of a healthy disciplined budget. Here to help me answer all of those questions and many more, we've got Jennifer Streaks. Jennifer is a senior personal finance reporter and spokesperson for Insider. She's covered personal finance and business for CNBC, Forbes, Black Enterprise Magazine, and she is the author of Thrive Affordably, your month-to-month guide to living your best life without breaking the bank. Jennifer, nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime, anytime. I went into a few of the reasons why credit card debt is rising at the top of the show. 
But another reason that I've been hearing about recently is something called revenge spending. When people shop to get back at something bad that's happened in their lives, maybe like living through a pandemic. Is this something that you've seen in your work lately? Oh, definitely. Revenge spending, revenge traveling. You have so many people that are trying to reclaim what it is they think they lost during COVID. And it, you know, actually can lead to a lot of overspending, which is what I've been seeing in my work, because it's how are you making this happen? You want to buy all of these things. You want to take all these trips all of a sudden because you feel like you lost something a year ago or two years ago. And it's putting people into debt. The pandemic allowed us to build up our savings accounts. I was following, I have this habit of tracking, as maybe you do as well, the personal savings rate in the United States. And during COVID, it popped sky high. Whenever we got a stimulus payment, you would see the savings rate in the United States pop. At one point, it got as high as 33%, which, you know, for some context, it usually sits at around 5%. That's all gone at this point, or it's mostly gone, right? Right. Definitely. We are burning through it. I mean, when you sit here and you say that typically the savings rate is at 5%, everything was closed down during COVID. You didn't have any place to spend money. So that's why it was easier to save. And now that we are out of that, people say, oh, I'm flush with cash. I can, you know, buy this. I can go here. I can, you know, go out to eat again three times a week. And I have this money, but we are burning through it. And with inflation still with us, you know, that's not exactly the best plan. How do we address that temptation to overspend when we're ready to treat ourselves? I mean, you know, quite frankly, we did, many of us, lose a couple of years. True, but you have to just be determined to stick to your budget. If you do want to treat yourself every now and again, it can't be something that just blows your budget. You know, because that's what you're seeing. You're seeing someone that normally wouldn't be able to afford, let's say, a $3,000 trip, and they're putting it on this credit card, you know, and that's what they're doing. And that is a budget buster if you cannot afford that. So I think it you have to ask yourself these questions. Do I have this money in the bank to spend right now? I want to treat myself on this item. How am I going to afford it? Can I pay for it right now? Am I going to put it on a credit card? Is it something that's going to break my budget? And if it's something that you can't pay for right now, you're going to put it on a high interest credit card, then it should be avoided. When you look at credit card behavior in this country, what are the common mistakes that you see people making when using their credit cards? Only making the minimum payment carrying a balance every month, and of course, missing payments. And that's just going to kill your credit history. Yeah, I don't think people understand that even a 30-day late, even a 60-day late, even one, and there are some credit card companies now that will give you a little bit of grace that will allow you one late payment. But the problem with people who are late is that they tend to be chronically late and that that kills a credit score. So if you think that you're going to miss a payment, if you don't have the money to make that payment, even a minimum, or you know 
that you have missed a payment, what's the right thing to do? What's the move to make at that point? As soon as you know that you're going to miss a payment, immediately get in contact with the creditor and say, you know, this has happened. I'm in this situation. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you have reduced hours. Something happened. Illness. I see I'm not going to make the payment this month. Can I get on a payment plan with you? Can we work something out? You know, I am being proactive. I'm calling you ahead of time. I'm letting you know what my situation is. Hopefully, if you have up until that point a great history with this creditor, they will be happy to work with you. It's in the creditor's best interest to work with you. They want you to keep your account on track with them and they want to get paid. So it's in their interest to work with you. And when you place that call to the credit card company, are there other things that you should be asking for? I mean, I've read these studies that say we should all be calling our credit card companies and asking for lower interest rates. We should be asking for additional perks. I mean, what's on the table that is available to me that I'm not asking for? I feel like everything is open to negotiation, especially if you are a good customer. You should be asking if there's a late fee, you should ask for it to be waived. You should negotiate your interest rate. You should know what your interest rate is. And if it's high and you've had that credit card a year or two years and you've been making on-time payments, maybe paying your balance off or not carrying a high balance, then say, hey, you know, I've been a great customer for you all and I want to negotiate down my interest rate. I think it's, you know, it's too high. It's too high for what it is that I want to pay. And I want to be able to continue to use this card as a good financial tool for me. And right now at this interest rate, it's not. So let's talk about reducing the interest rate. I have helped people through my work over the years for whom credit cards have become kind of addictive. They open a card, they spend to the limit, they open another card, they spend to the limit, they open a store card, they spend to the limit. All of a sudden, they have a portfolio of credit cards and half their paycheck is going just to making these payments. How many credit cards should a person have? And in terms of the best way to use them, how much is it okay to put on your card each month? What's the ideal utilization rate? I think, you know, two credit cards is enough. And what kind of cards should they be? I'll use myself as an example. I have a card for travel that has a higher limit. So, you know, I live away from my family. If I needed to get a ticket like that, I know that I can go to the airport and do that if I needed to get home. And then I have like an everyday credit card that I get points, I get, you know, whatever rewards, and I use that. I might use it at the grocery store. I might use it at the gas station because I am building up rewards. And that's what I have. I have two credit cards that fulfill specific purposes. Now, on both of these cards, I don't go over, and no one should go over 30% of your credit card limit. So that means if you have a $10,000 limit, you're not going to spend more than $3,000 on the credit card. What if you do spend more than $3,000? Let's say you've got to go home. 
right? You've got a $10,000 limit on that card. The ticket is $3,500. You know you're over the 30% mark. That's going to take your credit score down. We're going to talk a little bit more about credit scores in a moment. But what if you know you're going to go over that limit? What's the move? Then I immediately try to pay it off before the statement date. So I get it down before it has the total full impact. You know, sometimes you have to do what you have to do. But being a savvy credit card user means that you know how to sort of back yourself out of these situations. I do that too. I mean, I I have some months that are bigger spending than others. And if I feel like I'm closing in on my utilization, I just make an extra payment to the credit card company. I think people are unaware that you can do that, that you can just send them, you know, send them. I mean, you have to have the money, but send them some money to bring that utilization back into line. You mentioned rewards. What are the best ways to use rewards these days? Okay, so a few things about rewards credit cards. I mentioned earlier that you need to sort of be a credit savvy person. Everybody does not need a rewards card. That is the hook. It's just like when you go into a store, retail store, and they say, oh, you're going to get 10% off your purchase today if you open up this credit card. But do you really need that store card? Let me just answer that question. You do not need that store card. No, you do not. But with rewards cards, that is the hook. Oh, you're going to save this much on gas, or we're going to put, you know, you're going to gain all these miles. If you're not a travel person, then you don't need that credit card. That's the first thing. Understand whether or not this card is really going to work for you with the life that you lead. First and foremost, it might be something you don't even need to have in your portfolio. And then check and see if these rewards are something that you want. Is it worth what you're going to be paying? Is it going to be worth the interest rate? Is it going to be worth whatever the balances that you carry on this card? Or if can you pay it off? And the thing is, too, with any credit card, you have to be able to afford it. Any credit card. Can you afford this card? Often the rewards cards have significantly higher annual fees and the bigger the portfolio of rewards, the more they're going to cost you. So if you're looking at a Chase Sapphire Reserve, or if you're looking at Amex Platinum, you're looking at spending six, $700 a year. And there are things that you'll get, right? You'll get a travel credit. You'll get a credit on Uber. You'll get entrance to airport lounges in some cases. But you got to add up all those benefits and make sure that the cost is something that you would pay for otherwise, I think. Yeah, it's a cost-benefit analysis. I mean, that Amex Platinum, I think that the year, the annual fee is $695. You really have to say to yourself, is it going to be worth it? Am I going to use these rewards? Is it going to be a benefit to me? So what's the default if the answer to that is no, you're not a big traveler. It doesn't make sense necessarily to have a mileage card. Is it worth getting a cashback card? Maybe a cashback card would work for you. But you also, you have to understand how these things work. Really sit down and look at the pros and the cons and make sure that it's beneficial to you. And as I stated earlier, with any credit card, can you afford the card? It doesn't matter what the rewards are, what the benefits are. 
If you are over your credit utilization limit, if you're carrying a high balance every month, and if the interest rate is high, it doesn't matter. Right. And I think for a person like that, the biggest benefit that you can actually get is a low interest rate or as low an interest rate as possible, which brings up the question of balance transfers. Mm -hmm. There are these offers and they are in existence even though credit card interest rates and interest rates overall are going up. There are offers out there to transfer your balance to a card that has a 0% or very low interest rate for a while. Explain how these work and who they're good for. So with the transfer cards, it is a 0% APR, like you said, for a while, typically a year. So you will transfer your high interest credit card debt onto the 0% interest rate card. And that should seemingly take care of the problem. But you have a certain period of time to pay that entire balance off if you're going to take advantage of the 0% APR. And if you don't do it, and the thing is, I've read language that said, if you miss it, then the interest on the entirety of what you transferred will then be applied. So for instance, you transfer $10,000. At the end of 12 months, you still owe $1,800. You feel like you've done great. I've gotten it down to $1,800, this is wonderful but you still didn't pay it off within that year. So now whatever the regular APR is gonna be, and it's probably gonna be high, is applied to the $10,000, which is what you initially transferred, not the 1800. You have really got to read that paperwork. And so a balance transfer card works only if you can afford to pay that off and you can be really diligent about it and really pay that off within the allotted time unless you're going to get caught with that interest. Such a good warning. And there are also balance transfer fees, typically about 3% that you have to count on. We're going to come back, Jennifer, and I want to dig into the various methods for debt repayment, what works best for what kind of person. But before we do that, just a reminder that this show is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines because life comes at you fast and there could be wedding bells on the horizon, a promotion around the corner, a grandchild on the way. Are you financially prepared for everything that life has in store? With a well-crafted plan, you can be ready. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor. You'll work with an expert to review your current situation to develop a long-term strategy to help you embrace life's biggest moments. Schedule your free appointment today. I'm talking with Jennifer Streaks, Senior Personal Finance Reporter at Insider. So let's talk about these debt repayment methods, Jennifer. I mean, I know there's a bunch of them out there. There's the snowball. There's the avalanche. There's the blizzard. What's your favorite? What is my favorite? I would definitely go with getting rid of the highest interest debt first because that's the one that you're paying the most money on. That's what's costing you the most money. So get rid of that first and then on down the line. 
Okay, so you're an avalancher. An avalancher. And it's easier to do if you've got a good credit score. There's this misnomer out there that you can't have a good credit score if you have a lot of debt. It's just not true. It's not true. I mean, it's do you pay your bills every month? What your credit score is made up of is how you pay your bills. If you're paying your bills every month, I and I know I have several examples of this, of people that have credit cards, they use them for different reasons, but they pay it off and they pay it off in full every month. And their credit score is in the 800s because they are showing that they can pay their bills and they are not relying on their credit. That's what people don't understand when you are in a lot of credit card debt and you're not paying it off or you're not keeping it down. You're not keeping it under that 30 percent utilization. What you're signaling to lenders is that you're dependent on this credit and you cannot pay your bills. So what other factors go into the mix? You mentioned paying your bills on time. And again, you got to pay them on time every time. Put a minimum payment on automatic pilot, you know, boost it up so you pay it off as much as you possibly can, but make sure that some money gets sent to the credit card company. And credit utilization, I know, is a big factor. It represents about 30, 35% of your score. What else is in the mix? Credit history in terms of how long you've had credit, your credit mix, credit cards, mortgage, car note, do you have a favorable credit mix, and then new credit. Is new credit a good thing or a bad thing? It depends because what happens with new credit, when you apply for credit, it generates something called an inquiry on your credit report. And so if you have too many inquiries, that also impacts your credit score negatively because it's a signal to lenders like you're trying to get credit. Why do you need this credit? And Now they're looking at your credit profile and saying, you know, is she in debt? Why is she all of a sudden applying for credit, you know, all of a sudden in Moss? And so it it dings your credit score. And when you talk about credit history and length of credit history, what's important? How much do you want to aim for there? What I think it is, is just how long you've had good credit history. If you have a credit card that you've been paying on time or paying off every month for the past, you know, five years, that's excellent. That's a great length of time. A person that might have the same thing, a credit card that they've been paying on for the past year, you're going to have a higher credit score because you've had longer, good, on-time payments. One of the really confusing things about credit scoring is this dance, this balance that we try to achieve in closing cards. So let's say you're paying down debt and you're on your avalanche, you're doing well, you retire the debt on a particular card, you've got more than two cards in your portfolio. Should you or should you not get rid of it? Because getting rid of it, especially if you have that big fat credit line, is going to hurt your utilization. Yeah, and it's also going to hurt how long, the length of time you've been paying. Once you close it, that credit line is closed. So it's not going to continue to necessarily, you know, impact your score in a positive way, not as much as an open line of credit. The best thing to do is just cut the credit card up. And not use it. Just get rid of it and don't use it. Throw it away. My mom used to do that all the time. She would finish, you know, like a belt credit card and be done with it, cut it up and throw it away and be done with it. But not close it. Yeah, you don't have to close it. 
All right. How often do you check your credit score and your credit report and where do you get that information? So for me, I try to check it every month. Just for me, I think anyone else should at least check it quarterly. You can go to annualcreditreport.com to get your free report. But to get your credit score, you're probably going to have to go to someplace like a creditkarma.com to get it just to get your score and check that out. Yeah, they'll give it to you for free. You just have to know that they're going to market to you. And some of your credit cards may give it to you as well. I'm a big fan of freezing your credit. It can actually help protect you from fraud because it prevents somebody else from getting credit in your name. But the Identity Theft Resource Center recently did a study and they found that less than a third of Americans have frozen their credit at any point in their lives. What do you want to say to them to encourage this good behavior? Yes, because financial scams are on the rise. And it's such an easy and free way to protect yourself from identity theft. You would have to contact all three of the credit bureaus, but you can open up an account with them and do it online, or you can call over the phone. If you call over the phone, they're probably going to ask you, of course, you know, security questions to make sure you are you. But it is the best way and the best free way to protect yourself from identity theft during this time. Yeah. And it's not even a pain in the ass when you are trying to apply for credit. You just have to call the bureaus back or get in touch with them online. Really, online is the easier way to do it. And lift the freeze. Tell them to leave the freeze off for a week, however long it's going to take for that new lender to run your credit. And then it'll just settle right back on. Okay, Jennifer, last question, and I want to come back to where we started. For people listening who've come to rely on their cards to stretch their budgets, what is the very first step that they should take to break the cycle of debt? Stop using the credit card. (laughs) That's A. Just say that I am just putting this down. I mean, I get it. You know, inflation is still with us. Expensive to live now, and there's been an increase in consumer goods across the board. But you cannot rely on credit, especially if you cannot afford to pay it. So you have got to put together a realistic budget, stick to that budget, get rid of, stop using. If you have to cut it up and just do that, and then get yourself create a realistic debt repayment plan so you can get out of that credit card debt and stay out of it. But it all starts with a realistic budget. Jennifer Streaks from Insider, thank you so much for doing this with us today. Thank you for having me. Her Money is grateful to be supported by BCU. BCU measures its success by empowering its members to achieve their financial goals. The credit union wants your banking experience to be authentic and to be friendly, which is why its products let you bank in confidence and its caring service gives you peace of mind. See if you're eligible for what BCU has to offer at bcu.org. And Catherine Tuggle is in the house for your mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hi, Jean. So I have a weird way of thinking of credit card rewards, and I'm curious if this thought has ever crossed your mind. But you know how, like, at Chuck E. Cheese or Showbiz Pizza or any of those arcades, like, you put in a bunch of money to play a game, and then you get back tickets, and you take the tickets up to the counter, and they give you, like, an eraser For like the fact that you spent like $500 in the arcade. To me, this is what credit card points are. 
and you think to yourself, oh my God, I want an eraser. But then if you actually look at it, you could have done a lot of other things with that money you just spent. I get what you're saying. I think for me, I almost think of it like free money, right? If I am going to use a credit card, and look, I pay my credit card off every month. I've been disciplined and I'm fortunate enough that I can do that. And I keep my spending in check so that I can do that. But I use my credit card for everything. I use it literally for everything. I have two different credit cards that I sort of go between. One is an American Airlines credit card because since moving to Philadelphia, American Airlines is the airlines that gets you places that you want to go. The other is a Chase Sapphire Reserve card. I actually do pay the fee for it. I find it worth it because when I add up the travel credits and the cost of those airplane lounges that I am determined to sit in when I'm stuck in an airport, that in and of itself is worth it to me. And, you know, if I go to the grocery store, if I get a coffee, if I am getting my shoes repaired, if I am putting my easy pass swipes on some, it, it all goes on the same credit card and I just pay it off. It allows me to track my spending in a very convenient way. But then I know that I'm getting points and miles at the same time. And that has been helpful, particularly in traveling. For more than anything, I have used my points for flights. And when flights get expensive, then having points to transfer and use in that way makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah, that's a great point. I have a lot of friends who've had cruises and flights and other things completely paid for by their rewards. I get what you're saying about Chuck E. Cheese. I mean, I have had that very experience. And yeah, you get a Swedish fish or yes. something else that for here are your 2000 tickets. Oh, great. You get a Hot Wheel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Have you ever had credit card debt that you had to pay off? Yeah. When I got out of college, I had a credit card at a high interest rate. And well, I did two things badly. First was I racked up a lot of credit card debt. I was living in New York City, living above my means and not being very careful with my spending. I, I racked up a half year salary in credit card debt and had to dig my way out but the other mistake that I made was was doing a little bit of freelance writing at the same time. And that to me felt like, oh, I have money that I can save. So I stashed that money in a savings account, making very little in interest, not at all the rate of interest that I was paying on the credit card. And it wasn't until my roommate at the time saw me paying bills and she was like, what are you doing? Now, granted, she worked at Citibank, but she was like, what are you doing? You take that money out of the bank and you pay off that credit card because it is costing you so much more money. And that was a big personal finance lesson to 23-year-old me, but it was also maybe my very first financial psychology lesson. I felt so much safer having the money in the bank even though I had all that credit card debt. Yeah. Because I could look at that money in the bank and I felt like I had money, even though I owed that money to somebody else. So when we see studies about 
the percentage of assets that women keep in cash. 71%, by the way, compared with 60% for men. Or our prior sponsor, Fidelity, did a study that found that women, many of them, had much more in their checking accounts than they needed for even a very fat emergency cushion. That money should have been invested. I get it. Like, I I understand that. I like knowing that you've got a cash stash. You just can't allow yourself to supplement it or sustain it by keeping high interest rate debt on the side. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, where's the balance, though? Because even people who are paying down credit card debt need an emergency fund. So how much is too much? I think the balance is if you're paying down credit card debt, you split the difference. That's smart. You've got a certain amount of extra money that comes in every month. Take 50% of it and throw it against the credit cards. Take the other 50% and throw it against your emergency fund until you have a couple thousand dollars in there. And at that point, know that that few thousand dollars can bail you out of many jams and wail on the credit card debt. Yeah, absolutely. We've got some questions? We sure do. Our first question today comes to us from Jill. She writes, My husband will be turning 65 in a few months, and so he'll be able to get Medicare. But we have no idea where to begin or how to start the process of accessing Medicare and then choosing the right supplemental insurance to go with it. Do you have any suggestions? Are there any websites that list questions to think about or maybe point you in the right direction based on your current health needs? Thank you for all the amazing financial info. I haven't missed an episode. Thank you so much for asking, Jill. I don't know that we've ever gotten this question. So I'm going to point you to three very specific places, Jill, for this information. I don't think we've actually had a Medicare question before, so this is great. The first place is AARP. AARP on its website has a ton of really great information on Medicare. I know that they have information on there. I wear the hat proudly of the AARP Financial Ambassador, and I recently did a series of videos on Medicare and a webinar on Medicare for them. So you'll find that at the AARP site. Second place that I want you to look is a book. It's called How to Get What's Yours from Medicare. It was written by Larry Kotlikoff, who is an economist and is incredibly knowledgeable on this stuff. He also wrote a book called How to Get What's Yours from Social Security. And there may, don't check me on this, but there may be a version of the book that combines the two. The last place that I think that you should look or at least consider looking is to talk to somebody who sells Medigap insurance. So when you're going into Medicare, the big choice that you have to make is whether you want a Medicare Advantage policy, which works kind of like an HMO, or a Medigap policy, which works a little bit more like a PPO. Medicare Advantage is going to be cheaper, but you're going to be limited to a network of providers and hospitals that you pretty much have to use. Medigap works more like a PPO, gives you greater choice of doctors, give you greater choice of hospitals, but it's more expensive. And the big choice that you have to make is which one you want to go with. 
So talking to somebody who sells Medigap policies, while keeping in mind they sell Medigap policies, is a good additional way to get an education. And I hope that that helps. Thank you so much, Jean. These things are so complicated. When you hit retirement, you've got to think about Social Security and Medicare. It's, I feel like so many people need a helping hand with this stuff. Yeah, and we should probably do a Medicare show. We can certainly look into that. With Medicare specifically, there are deadlines that you have to hit. So I know it won't work for everybody in our audience. The 30-year-olds in our audience will be rolling their eyes. But go ahead, guys, send it to your parents. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Our next question is from Tina. She writes, can you explain HSAs to me? I understand what it is. I always thought that it was a use it or lose it type of thing, but I guess not with all companies. So what if you don't use it? Why are you taxed for not using it? Not everyone gets sick and some employers have benefits where there's no copay or benefits are paid at 100%. If the funds have to be used by October, what do you use the money on? Let me add that I find I've contributed too much. And now if the money isn't spent by October 2023, there will be a 6% tax. Employer contributions are considered income. Thank you so much. So Tina, what's going on here is that you're confusing two different accounts. So let me just take a step back and explain that there are FSAs, which are flexible spending accounts, and there are HSAs, and those are health savings accounts. A flexible spending account is a use it or lose it account. You put money into this account, pre-tax money, a certain amount, and if you don't use it by your employer's deadline, that money actually reverts to the employer. Basically, you can use flexible spending dollars for unreimbursed medical things like prescriptions and copays, and you start to see ads toward the end of the year that encourage you to load up on contact lenses and refill all your prescriptions and get new glasses and have all your checkups. So that's where that comes in. A health savings account is different. A health savings account is an account that you qualify for if you have a high deductible health care policy. The money that you contribute to this account each year is limited to a certain amount by the IRS. There are individual minimums and family minimums. The money goes in pre-tax, just like an FSA. Once it's in the account, you can invest it so that it grows for your future and any growth on that money is tax-free. And as long as you use the money when you pull it out for qualified medical expenses, then you pay no taxes on that money. That's why sometimes you'll hear people refer to health savings accounts as triple tax-free. If you don't use the money in a particular year, There is no penalty. You can grow that money. In fact, many people believe that a good strategy is to not use the money, to try to pay for your healthcare expenses out of ordinary income, and to grow this as essentially a supplemental account 
for retirement. Once you get to retirement, if you pull money out of this fund, again, as long as you use it for medical care, there's no taxes owed. But even if you use it for non medical care in retirement, it'll be treated just like a 401k withdrawal. And that in and of itself is a really good thing. Now, the 6% tax is something else. What happened here is that you over-contributed. You put too much into that HSA, more than the IRS allows. And the IRS basically says that for any excess contributions, you're going to owe a 6% penalty for each year that that excess contribution remains in your HSA. So you could speak to a tax advisor for some guidance here. You could also look for different ways to spend down this money. If you or members of your family are having any sort of medical procedure, if you've been thinking about braces, now might be a good time to spend some money on braces. If you've been thinking about other elective surgery or elective procedures that you've been deferring, if there are expensive tests or checkups that you haven't had where you know that the full amount will not be reimbursed, Now is a good time to think about spending the money on them. And then talk to your payroll department, because what we don't want is for this to become a chronic problem. Generally, HSA contributions are made like 401k contributions in the form of paycheck deductions. You want to adjust the amount that's going in from you and your employer combined so that you don't get ahead of the maximums again. Such great advice, Jean. Appreciate the clarification. Thank you. Thanks so much. Really good question, Tina. Thanks, everybody, for writing. And in today's Thrive, we have all seen the impact of inflation at the grocery store. Even eggs, especially eggs, which used to feel like a pantry staple, are feeling like more of a luxury purchase. Prices are up 50% in a year. If you're hoping to stretch your grocery budget further, there are a few tips and tricks that you can use to do that. At HerMoney.com, we put together a list of strategies. Number one, swap out some of your fresh produce for frozen. It's just as healthy. It's usually a dollar or two cheaper, depending on what you get. And you don't have to worry about forgetting about it in the back of the fridge and throwing it out later. For produce that you're buying fresh, try to avoid the pre-sliced, pre-packaged versions. A bag of pre-made salad might cost double the amount that you'd spend on an entire head of lettuce. And if you buy other non-prepped veggies to go with that lettuce, like whole carrots or tomatoes, you could have triple the amount of salad for less money and just a few more minutes of chopping. Same rule goes with cheese. You save a lot more by grating it yourself versus buying pre-shredded. And if you like to buy organic, Now's a really good time to think about what products are worth the extra money. Certain fruits and vegetables are less susceptible to pesticides, including anything you have to peel, like bananas or oranges. It may make sense to buy standard instead of organic in those cases. 
The Environmental Working Group puts together a yearly report of produce and their levels of exposure to pesticides. You can use that to adjust your shopping list. Just go to ewg.org. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Jennifer Streaks for showing us how to use credit cards without letting credit cards use us. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes through Megaphone. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon.